0: Theoretically, Bitcoin is a monetary system for the last 1,000 years instead of 50 years. What does that do to society? What if this institution doesn't decay? What if it lasts? What if we can build on top of it uh, a greater, more collaborative society? Um, That's entirely possible.
1: Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into today's interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. And this show is brought to you by Casa, the safest way to store your Bitcoin. Now, listen, forgotten passwords, SIM swaps and phishing attacks. There are just too many ways for you to have your Bitcoin lost or stolen. But with Casa, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again, because with Casa's multi-sig wallet, you can take custody of Bitcoin, but only move by signing transactions from multiple wallets, ones that you get to distribute into different locations, which is going to protect you from a range of mistakes, errors and vulnerabilities. Now, if you want to find out more, you can reach out to me over email or drop me a DM on Twitter. I've been a customer for over a year and I'm happy to answer any of your questions. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Also, next up, we have sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now the football season started. It's been a strange start to the season. Tottenham started well, but obviously they fell apart. Typical Tottenham stuff, and Liverpool are crushing it. But it's a bit tied up there. Other teams are doing very well. Now listen, with Sportsbet, you've got everything covered. Not only do they cover football, but they support tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even have eSports. And for new customers, there is always a range of promotions available. If you want to find out more, then please head over to sportsbet.io, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T. Io. Next up we have Exodus wallet, who I am using as my mobile and desktop wallet for my Bitcoin. Now, as you know, UX is super important to me. So when the Exodus team reached out to me, I spent some time playing with the app, and you know what, they crushed it. The experience is amazing, which is why I'm happy to recommend it to you, my friends, and my family. Now, the Exodus desktop gives you a way to secure and manage your Bitcoin in one beautiful application. And with their mobile wallet, you can send and receive safely using a QR code or address knowing that Exodus automatically checks all addresses for errors. So make sure you check it out yourself at Exodus.com or search for Exodus in the Google or Apple app stores. Yo, Brandon, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Peter. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. In. Thanks for flying in for this, dude. Really appreciate it. We, uh, we did an interview just a bit over a year ago, proved to be super popular. Uh, At that time, it was one of the biggest shows I'd ever done, like top 10, I think. Uh, It was a topic a lot of people were talking about at the time, fourth turning. Uh, So I think it's a good time to revisit it. So thank you for coming back and doing this. I know you've done a lot of prep, but how have you been anyway? You've been
0: well? I've been great. Yeah, it was a very easy uh, question. Do I want to go to Miami in the winter? (laughs) Where I live, it's quite cold. There's snow on the ground, no sunshine. so easy easy yes for me and i'm very passionate about this topic it was actually a personal thing for me uh-huh. last year you know chaos lots of transition lots of change and i'm sitting there like what's going on and so i just went in the cave and started reading and learning and trying to figure out what's happening and out of that process came the fourth turning uh, i read it a couple of times and that thesis seemed to be the best tool to view the change and after sort of internalizing that idea. First, I fought it. I was like, it kind of sounds like horoscopes for, for intellectuals in a mm-hmm. way. Um, and the deeper I got, I realized that it does feel like this emergent human thing. It feels like ground up, this is how humans operate. And it is just a model, right? Like the map is not the territory. However, it felt so useful. And you know, having a sense of these cycles gave me some peace in a sense that, okay, the world looks pretty grim, But I don't think it's going to end, right? We've been here before. There's so many parallels to the 40s. And, you know, that sort of gives you some cautionary things, but also, yeah, like I said, a little bit of peace for the future. Like, we'll get through this.
1: Well, anyone who hasn't heard the last one, they won't necessarily need to go back because I think we're going to revisit part of it. But the reason I wanted to cover it with you again is because we made that show. So much more weird and crazy shit has happened since. It felt like a good time to go back in and, like use that as a, a lens back into the fourth turning. I was going to save this bit until later on, but actually let's do it now. Uh, Danny uh, mentioned, because I'd forgotten about it, I raised the fourth turning in my interview with Eric Weinstein, and he was like, he didn't want to talk about it. He's very critical of it. His, uh, his, the point he made is uh, he's got this thesis of snap to grid. What is it, Danny, snap to grid? Snap to grid. Yeah, so like something, there's a theory or something happens and then people just attach themselves to it rather than like dealing with the fact there might be new information or whatever. But uh, so he he himself isn't a fan of this, he didn't want to talk about it. And I guess there are other critics of The Fourth Turning, you've probably uh, read them yourself, you've probably dealt with them, but could you kind of summarize the main criticisms and what your kind of view is on those criticisms?
0: Yeah, I would say, let's see, I get two main criticisms. One is from the Bitcoiners. And <laughs> in our beautiful arrogance, we say, well, now Bitcoin's here, the cycles are over. And to be honest, that was my fir- first read through the book. That was my my thesis. Like, okay, okay um, yeah, but technology changes things. And then I went a little bit deeper with the material, spent more time listening to one of the authors, Neil Howe. And then, then it became clear that this is just a human thing. And we t- kind of talked about it earlier. like yeah, the technology changes, but human nature doesn't change very much. And so it's really about looking at the mood. And I think that's the important part. It's not predicting exactly what's gonna happen. It predicts how humans in a group respond to catalysts. And I I think that's kind of like my answer to the Bitcoin thing is yes, new technology, but there was new technology in the forties. There was new technology in the civil war and the revolutionary war, and a lot of things have changed. And yet this process continues. And so that's criticism one. Another one would be, it's just like horoscopes for intellectuals. And what that kind of reduces down to as an argument is that you're just sort of looking for patterns that don't exist. And I am a little bit sympathetic to this, right? Mm -hmm. Which is why I wouldn't say I only use one lens to view the world. That's obviously a mistake, maps not the territory. And so, yeah, I think there's credence there, but again, the people who make those critiques, they have only a 20% understanding. And so, and I was there. I, I know exactly what that feels like. And I've yet to meet someone who grasped the material well enough in order to make thoughtful critiques. Very similar to Bitcoin. Um, and the deeper I went, the more I started to see this these patterns playing out. Started to make sense. Cancel culture made sense, right? Why is humanity trying to collectivize right now? Why are, Why is everything political? That all makes sense through this lens. And I guess to counteract my own position there, you could Mm -hmm. say the more I learn about it, the more my identity attaches to this thing, right? And so I I sort of have a little reputation attached to this book, which was not really intentional. It's just what happened. Um, So yeah, that's what I would say. And I'm still bullish on the thesis, but it's only one tool in the toolkit.
1: Okay, so how much do we know about the author, Neil Howe? Yeah, so he's a longtime historian. Uh He's
0: a classic DC intellectual author guy. Um, Him and his co-author, the late Bill Strauss, they wrote, uh, their big book was called Generations in the early 90s. The president said it was the most influential thing they read. And so they have a long-term history. Um, you know, they were sort of, I guess they get they were given credit for calling it the millennial generation. So deep thinkers in that world. Um, now Neil works for Hedgeye, which is kind of a funny uh, tension point. He, he's not very bullish on Bitcoin. But Explain I, Hedgeye. Um, Hedgeye Risk Management is a investment shop. I don't know exactly what they do but you send them their money and they invest for you. Okay. And he's sort of the mm. demographer or the guy who studies demographics for them. Um, but I'm blanking on the guy's name. Um, oh, shoot. The CEO is, is very tense with Bitcoiners. Someone needs to look this one
1: up. But Danny, who's that? CEO of Hedgeye. Okay. He'll find it for us.
0: Yeah. Um, anyways, <laughs> so Neil's a demographer. He's Keith bearish McCullough? on Bitcoin. Sorry? Keith McCullough? Yes, Keith McCullough. Everyone oh, on shit, Twitter knows guy. this guy.
1: Ah, yeah. Hold on.
0: He came unhinged with Bitcoin, and he owns some, and he he trades around it. But he just had a little tussle with the Bitcoin community.
1: Yeah, I remember him. Do. Yeah, did he wasn't he one like like bought and then sold it? Mm-hmm. And like everyone, quad yeah. four. Yeah, that was his model. Why he sold? Yeah, I remember. I remember. Okay, well, whatever.
0: Yeah. So yeah, Neil's, Neil's a classic DC guy. I would say he's Bitcoiners would call him a statist. I would say he has much more optimistic views of government than Bitcoiners do. And so that might be the one tension point or difference in ideology ideology that matters.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, they call me a statist, so I'm okay with that. Yeah,
0: I mean, <laughs> if you're to the left of the Bitcoin mass, you're a statist.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I say I'm a reluctant statist, but we can get into that later maybe if it's part of it. Okay, so I think, like I say, like the, the audience of the show is bigger than when we made this last time, so a lot of people wouldn't have heard it. They might not have read the fourth turning. Do you want to just do like the TLDR?
0: Definitely. Yeah, I think it's important. And to preface, it's really hard to do a TLDR. I know. And so I'm going to do the shortest version and then try to drop little breadcrumbs along the way and we'll kind of make a picture by the end. Okay. And so book was written in the late 90s, uh, right around the same time as a sovereign individual. I consider them very good companion pieces. And the main thesis is that humanity goes through cycles roughly every 80 to 90 years. And at the end of that cycle, um, people look around and they say, all our institutions are crumbling. So think government, think economics, think healthcare, all the exterior world starts to crumble. And we decide, wow, we actually need some institutions. We need some order in society. And so humanity collectivizes at that crisis moment, usually a war, and then we sort of reimagine the world. And it has many effects. Um, One of the effects is that it tilts the, the game board back to the young people. And so essentially wealth consolidates over this period, the institutions decay, and then we just rattle the cages and reset the game board, giving some hope back to the young people. And they need hope in order to drive humanity forward. Um, So that's kind of the key point. Uh, Previous fourth turnings would be the Civil War, uh, the American Revolution, and the period between 1929 and 1945. And so that's, that's the best example for where we are today, right? You have the stock market crash, FDR's New Deal, All these new centralization of of power and government that we've never seen before World War II, and then on the tail end of that, Bretton Woods, right? Redo the financial system. Out of this, we had IMF, World Bank, NATO, FDIC insurance. Um, So many, so many different things that were crazy at the time. And we're kind of going through that same thing right now. And so if you look around, our institutions are failing us, inequality is high, populism rising, you can feel collectivism coming in cancel culture is essentially a response mechanism to there's a big problem, we got to fix it. And if you're not with us, you're against us. And so they just cleave off the the non-believers, right? Climate change is going to be the same way. It's like big problem, got to collectivize. And so it makes sense, but it comes at a high cost, right? There was a lot of communism and young people were pursuing that in the thirties as well. Um, And you you, you sort of flirt with losing markets and you flirt with losing the, the emergent organizational properties um, that I think makes a society good. And so it's kind of looks like we're trending towards China right now, um, that's because we are. It uh, doesn't mean we're gonna go that far, right? There's different forces at play, but I think that's the main risk. Um, and then the other thing to mention here is that there's four stages in one full cycle. You can think of it like uh, first, second, third, fourth, spring, summer, fall, winter, or he gives fancy names like the high, um, the unraveling, the crisis, etc. And At the end of the cycle, we redo the exterior world. Halfway through the cycle, we redo the interior world. So the second turning is the awakening. That's when we have religious movements. That's when we have the civil war, or sorry, uh, civil rights movement, psychedelic 60s, right? That's essentially young people realizing everywhere around them is boring and lame and white picket fence and young people rebel. That's the baby boomers. Mm -hmm. Um, And another thing that matters here is the line, history creates generations and then generations create history. What do I mean by that? So let's say we're all millennials. We grew up in one period of time. So we're a generation that was forged by history. We're all born at the same time. We have the same hopes, wishes, dreams. We're all parented kind of the same, context the same. So we kind of create a generation with similar characteristics. Individual is unique. The group is not unique and very predictable. Then they turn into adults. Right? Young people go to old people, what do they do? They rebel against their parents. And you can sort of follow that generation and track them over time, depending on what stage of life they are, and predict the mood, predict how they will respond to catalysts. That's the key. Um, so history creates generations, generations create history. You can just build that principle from the ground up. And then each generation is given an archetype, like a hero, nomad, et cetera, et cetera, um, which is just a useful, again, a Jungian human thing that we do. And so you add all that up together and it's about how does humanity respond to a catalyst? That's kind of the key point. Um, That's probably enough to start.
1: That's a good start. Um, I I don't really want to cover first and second turning now. We might cover first turning towards the end because that's where we're heading towards a a new dawn. But I definitely want to cover third and fourth turning. I think both of those are kind of interesting points because essentially we are now within the fourth turning, right? Correct. Correct. Uh, and that was uh, in the book. Neil talked about that in in 2005. We were discussing earlier. We think it was probably more like 2007, with the start of the financial crisis, uh, that being the trigger point. But I think it's useful to talk about what happens in the third turning. You know and how that takes it. Like like that period of time. What is happening?
0: Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, and I think we should actually do all four to make it. Yeah, I'll do it super quick though. So the last fourth turning was World War II, New Deal stock market crash. Okay, we redid everything. Chaos, World War, Mm -hmm. everything like that. Then right after World War uh, II, we had the, the first turning, that's the high. We're sick of fighting, white picket fences, inequality is low, people are generally happy and we just don't want to fight anymore. And the boomers who were born during that generation, they grow up and they rebel against the sterile white picket fence. There's no music, there's no culture. So they rebel, that creates the the second turning. Um, The interior world's reimagined. Okay, then it carries over into the third turning, which is a period called the unraveling. That's where economically things are okay, right? The getting's good, we deregulate. This is the 1920s, it's champagne, nobody cares. Um, Then the fourth turning strikes around 2008 and we realize, okay, the world's burning, institutions are failing, and it's time to actually do something about it, right? In the third turning, nobody cares. Problems were happening, but nobody looks at politics, nobody really cares about economics because it's just working fine, Um, right? The fourth turning catalyzes all this civic engagement. That's a really key point today is gonna be civic engagement. Um, In the fourth turning, we get rid of religion and we replace it with civic engagement or politics. That's why everything's political right now. Um, because collectively we realize there's a big problem. And so every election matters, and we all focus in on politics. And so it gets really tense, and it causes problems. But I think it is a natural response to trying to fix the big things. Um,
1: yeah. Okay, so let's, let's talk about third turning, though. I, I think that's an important focus point. So I'm taking a quote from the book. Uh, today's... Third turning problem, crime, race, money, family, culture and ethics will snap into a fourth turning solution, okay? Um, And when we talk about a fourth turning solution, we're not talking about that these are going to be positive solutions, we're talking about the societal response to them, which they think is a solution. So as an example, if we talk about race, which I I know you haven't gone hugely into, but we were just theorizing the, the race issues of the third turning, uh, one of the inflection points was the uh, uh, the riots in LA following the uh, Rodney King, the acquittal of the uh, the police who beat the shit out of him, um, uh, the war on drugs, um, and the prison system, the three strike rule. They've been pretty punitive towards black communities, so there there has been a race issue. We've seen that manifest manifest itself as a crisis in this fourth turning with BLM and Black Lives Matters. Is that a fair kind of? summary of one of those key points.
0: Yes, definitely. Um, and you touched on a really important point, which is that um, this thesis looks at opposing forces in a pendulum, right? Mm-hmm. Is capital strong? Is labor strong? Okay, is, are we individualists? Or are we collectivists? Are we globalists? Or are we isolationists? And um, I think that's just important framing for all these things, because your point was in the third turning, uh, there was a lot of race problems. But what, what the response is, nobody wants to fix anything. So politicians downplay all the problems in the third journey. And they will just try to minimize any issue to sweep it under the rug, you know, just here's another glass of champagne, go on your way. Then in the fourth turning, that shifts. And instead of minimizing problems, politicians lean into the problems. That's where you get uh, make America great again, hope and change, build back better. Right? All of those slogans embed the ideology that there's a problem and I'm, I'm your savior. I'm the politics guy, I'll come and save the day. And so with race, it's the same deal. Um, prior, we would say there's no race problems in the 90s. Obviously there were. Now we're seeing even the slightest thing that could sort of smell like racism is the most racist, horrible thing imaginable. And so politicians lean into that, and they, they kind of, again, pendulum swung back the extreme opposite way. Everything's racist now. And politicians use it as a tool because people want to latch on to problems right now. That's just the mood we're in. And so, yeah, they just slurp up all the, the popular um, support. Populism's everywhere in the world right now, and that's just how the fourth turnings go.
1: But, but as politicians you know, pick up these ideas and lean into them, they are still non-partisan issues, right? There, there is still conflict in politics around these issues. So, is it, is it parties are particularly picking specific issues, and there's a reason why the opposition party, yeah, you know, we're talking about the U.S. and a two-party system that are always opposed. It's like there doesn't appear to be anything that Democrats and Republicans agree on right now. I mean, they agree on money printing. <laughs> well, yeah, well, they do and they don't, Brendan, because, yeah. You say they do, because under the Trump administration they were printing money. He was sending out stimulus checks, but now that Biden has his infrastructure bill and wants to print money, there are Republicans who are, you know, coming out against this. They are opposing mm-hmm. this, and they were saying, "Look at inflation! Look at these inflation numbers under the Biden administration." Not realizing that actually this is—it takes years. Like this is years of uh, money printing that's led to the inflation now. So I think they, I think they're being a little bit disingenuous.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think your point's valid that there are opposition to these ideas, but I think the key point is that the center of mass in politics shifts a little bit, right? The noise is always there on the fringe, but I think that the center, yeah, where all the masses shifted towards collectivism, and I mean, I think I think if a Republican was in charge, we'd still be printing money, maybe a little bit less, and it would go to a little bit less uh, social justice warrior-ish items, but we'd still be printing a ton. And we can get into money printing because
1: But I think it's not really I, a social thing. But I think then the Democrats would be challenging and opposing this. It's a bit similar to how uh, prior, like very early on in COVID, the Democrats were very much against vaccines. Now they're very much for vaccines and the Republicans, there's some, well, I wouldn't say very much against it, but there's been some challenges regarding, specifically mandates, which I do agree with what I'm saying, there's a lot of flip-flopping between these parties now.
0: I agree. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> and I think your point about, uh, I think Kamala Harris is the best example. <laughs> she was tweeting, um, don't take the Trump vaccine. This is horrible. we got to do it the right way. I'll never take it. Neither should you. And then, you know, six months later, a year later, uh, she's saying the literal exact opposite of her position. And yeah, there's tons of examples like that. And our, our administration has done this tons of times, right? Like don't wear a mask, They're, they don't do anything. Okay, now you have to wear a mask. And we can list endless examples. And it all comes back to the fact that we don't trust our institutions anymore. Mm-hmm. And they don't deserve our trust. The media is is more or less useless or, or harmful. Government feels like a disaster. Who's in charge here? Um, the banks, Even insti- everything.
1: Sorry. Even international institutions. Mm-hmm. All trust has been lost in the World Health Organization. Uh, specifically, I mean, there's multiple things you can point to, uh, but specifically, do you remember that interview with the guy, and they were talking about Taiwan, and they just like cut them off? ah, Remember that, Danny? I don't remember that. I'll have a look. Yeah, look that one up. Um, Anyway, let's go back to the money printing.
0: Yeah, so I guess the tricky part here is that if I'm a central banker, we, we can demonize central bankers all we want, and there's probably good reason, but In reality, I think they're acting on their own incentives Mm -hmm. and they don't have a choice. (laughs) The the interest rates at the zero bound, we have too much debt, we can't pay it off. Um, And this happened in the 30s as well. What happened? A giant expansion of the monetary base. And, you know, that gets our percentage of debt to GDP down a little bit, which we need to do. Um, Now we have aging demographics. So increased liabilities coming in the future. So even more pressure. And they essentially have three choices. They can go into austerity mode, which there's no political capital for. Nope. We can go into a increase the GDP, which could happen if we had like a white swan event where we invent nuclear fission or some crazy technology that changes everything, unlikely. Um, or we go into a period of soft default, right? Where we just increase the money supply, which devalues the real value of debt for everyone. And it sort of just resets the financial system so you know a decade or two of financial repression and you know if you own hard assets you're going to do okay if you own financial assets bonds etc you're going to do pretty poorly and from their perspective it's print money or have a revolution and that's a pretty easy choice for politicians and you know they're going to the, the downside of this is we're going to see inflation and so we're going to be gaslit the whole time and bitcoiners have been calling this out for years, mm-hmm. but you know you can't even say the I word on Twitter, right? You know you get called a crazy person. Now the Omicron variant is to blame, not that we increased the monetary base <laughs> by forty percent.
1: Or the inflation is good for us. That article that came out, I think it was it in the in, um, in, oh, I can't remember what it's called. Inter, whatever it was. The article, the inflation is good for you, like that moronic article. In the Intercept. Intercept, yeah, in the Intercept.
0: Exactly. Yeah. They're going to gaslight us the whole time. And and so what does that do? I mean, if you're ahead of the curve, you can ride this out and do okay. Um, But most people don't have time to look at this stuff. And so they're going to be hurt pretty bad. And I think Bitcoiners make that point often. Um, But I think there's something here that Bitcoiners miss, which is that it actually might end up being a good thing for the little guy. Okay. I think you might like this one, but Neil Howe calls it equalizing forces. Okay. And so the, the general thesis is that right now um, we're going to go through chaos, right? And the, the big guys with all the money, they have more to lose. Mm-hmm. The little guy has nothing to lose, no wealth. And so the big guys need to navigate this a little bit better. And during fourth turnings, we have to tilt the game board back to the little guy. And so, um, yeah, okay, inflationary decade's inevitable. We're going to go through all that kind of stuff. Um, financial assets get wrecked. But the outcome is at the end of the fourth turning. Okay, the little guy's gonna get wrecked all through the next decade. And they're going to really struggle. But if they can get through this period, theoretically, we're going to reset financial asset prices, we're going to reset the game board. And in the first turning, let's say the 30s through the 50s. um, I I do predict a period of increased equality, economic equality, okay, um, more opportunity. And I'm, I'm not going to put a lot of weight on this thesis, but this has this is what happened every time during fourth turnings. And so there's a little bit of optimism for the little guy
1: if we can get through the hard part. Okay. I mean, it's tough to justify, though. It's tough to sell that. I agree. Yeah. Okay. So the money printing part, thats is, is this the crisis moment of the fourth turning? One of the crisis?
0: It's a good question. Um, it feels like it. Uh-huh. It feels like the big one. Um, but at the same time, I don't, I don't know. I, I foresee we have about five years or so until the peak. And so I, I'm, it's really hard for me to put any confidence on a prediction right now. Yeah. Um, I could see China encroaching on the West and we have some sort of conflict over different ideological points, right? China is saying essentially, um, we're ready to take our role as a leader and we're, we play the long game and we're here and the US doesn't really like that. And so I could see some tension there. I could see tension over the monetary base. Um, I could see a U.S. civil war happening, sort of like a state's fracture, you know, your neighbors fighting each other, similar to the Revolutionary War or the Civil War or the Spanish Civil War.
1: Um, that's that's all possible. I hope that doesn't happen. Well, um, well let's work through them because if there isn't... Like, can, how does this model fail? How does the fourth turning model fail? That what, there is no giant end crisis, there is no war, there is no reset?
0: Yeah, good question. And I think Taiwan would be an interesting point to go through this. Yeah. It's like, does there need to be a war or not? Um, and I think the answer is that you don't need a war. But what you do need is a catalyst strong enough to collectivize the people in order to actually make a big change, right? Okay. Humans are lazy, yep. we don't act until we absolutely must. And so war is usually the catalyst that we need. Um,
1: I don't know, though. Like. Because, because it could be uh, another financial crisis, but significantly worse than 2008. Something where like 2008, essentially, the banks were bailed out, we kicked the can down the road. And actually, if you look at the money print in 2008, it pales into insignificance compared to what's happening right now. Um, I, th- I i do forget the numbers I've brought them up a few times but i'm pretty sure it was like 800 billion was the bailout figure for 2008 like it's been trillions this year Agreed. so could could a massive global financial crisis massive financial depression can that be a can that be an end of fourth turning event is it does it need to be something that triggers that moment where the institutions are rethought and rebuilt
0: so I think that the you're right about 08 being small. Yeah. I think it's a blip. It doesn't even really matter. Yeah. Um, I think that it's hard It's hard for me to say. My gut feeling says that it's not going to be only a financial thing. I think it's going to be much, much worse than that, sadly. Okay. Um, and yeah, the money printer is going to go exponential for the next decade. And that's going to cause problems. But you know, the government essentially knows this and they're trying to manage the situation. Okay. So they come out with things like central bank digital currencies, mm-hmm. right? And this is sort of like the curse of the central planner. They see a problem and they're like, ooh, I love problems, I'm gonna solve this. And so, you know, they just get their hands dirty and try to fix everything from the ivory tower. And so central central bank digital currencies are essentially recognizing that there's a problem and all that we need to do is give the smart people more power and then we'll solve it harder and faster and better. And and so I, I see that being a tool that might actually work in the short term, right? That's what happens when you're trying to wrangle with these complex systems is central planners think they understand the economy, and so they make all these hasty decisions which backfire, all these unintended consequences. And that's how I see central bank digital currencies. They're going to be able to directly send money wherever they want. They're going to have way more control. We're going to give up all our freedoms. And I think people are going to be okay with it. That's the scary part here, is that individuals in a fourth turning, especially the millennial generation, they're okay giving up freedoms for the greater good. You can just feel it on the internet. It's like- Because they
1: don't understand the consequences?
0: Because for them, they see the world as a, a huge crisis moment. And the only way to get through a crisis moment is to make collective sacrifice for the good of everyone. Okay, It's a pretty rational position, but if it goes too far, right? We have a lot of problems. Like the virus? Temporary. Giving up our liberties? That's permanent. And so I fear for the millennial generation, which I'm among, because that is the mood. That's what they want. And it's really hard to fight against that. And so Bitcoin kind of comes in here as a uh, immovable rock. It's a strong force that it doesn't matter what the millennials think, um, what they feel about collectivism. Bitcoin's not going away. And so It also plugs in, it actually fills our two biggest problems. One, financial system breaking. Two, from the fourth turning perspective, we need strong institutions. We need order back to society. And that could look like central bank digital currencies, social credit scores, you know, eat the bugs, whatever, great reset model. Or it could look like a new financial layer, Bitcoin, which is sort of like a new government, new institution that's immovable, that cannot change. And I think millennials will latch onto that because it actually fulfills their needs. They, most of them just haven't realized it yet. It is a fair system. Millennials love things to be fair and equal. And so to me, that that's the optimism here is we're going to go through a financial crash. It could have war involved. I hope not. It could have civil war. I hope not. Um, but this Bitcoin thing is sort of a life raft. It's sort of a pressure release valve to get people onto a new system before it gets too bad. And I don't think we've ever had anything like that. This is Outside the system, right? This is Bucky Fuller's. You know, to obsolete the system, you have to build something new, and
1: well, it's, yeah. it, it, it is a new institution, but it's all a, a mostly incorruptible institution.
0: Correct. That that's the important part. Yeah. Right. And if we look back through the like, okay, Svetsky always critiques me and says okay. the Bitcoin will destroy this, the model, right? And there's some potential there because the difference is. Um, all of our financial systems and all of our political institutions throughout history, they only last 30, 50, 70, 80 years. Um, they're human-run. They're, they're very, very politicized. Um, that's what always happens with the money, right? Satoshi quoted this, you get the money and you, know, you get corrupted and you abuse the trust. And theoretically, Bitcoin is a monetary system to last 1,000 years instead of 50 years. And what does that do to society? What if this institution doesn't decay? What if it lasts? What if we can build on top of it uh, a greater, more collaborative society? Um, that's entirely possible. But then you have to be uh, conscious of the risk, which is that what if Bitcoin grows up and then it gets neutered by the state? We let our, we stop running nodes. We let supply concentrate in banks. We, we give up KYC for everything. And it's sort of just, okay, they let us have a $100 trillion asset, but the important properties of Bitcoin decay over time as we just give up um, the good parts of
1: Bitcoin. And I think that is possible. Okay. H- how much of the, the fourth cycle, the fourth turn cycle, do you think is linked, like intrinsically linked to economics? Like is it an entirely an economic model or is it entirely linked to an economic model?
0: Yeah, good question. I, I think that it's not an economic model. I think it's about how humans respond to their environment. What is the mood at the time?
1: But it, But is the underlying is the underlying uh, mood created due to the financial situation I'm trying trying how do I best word this okay so I get what you're saying so so what, yeah I'm I'm trying to back to that like tough times creates you know strong man strong man create good times yada yada so post world war 2 uh, there was a lot of debt a lot of rebuilding um you know tough economic times but after the rebuilding there was abundance so Good times, correct. So I'm wondering, like, I'm wondering how much money and time preference plays into the cycle. You don't think it does it? No,
0: I mean it definitely does. Okay. I think economics is as as powerful as any force in society. Um, and so what I would say is, it's the mood and the environment upon which we act is part of economics. It's part of um, just generally politics. It's part of family life. It's how are our parents raising the kids? Do we go and, and are we religious? Or are we not religious? Um, all of that combined creates the mood. Right. And so, I mean, like I, I'm on your team here with economics being super powerful and probably even more powerful, but I don't think that economics alone describes everything with how humans respond to the world. Okay. And so what would be a good example? Um, let's take the dot com crash mm-hmm. right end of the internet boom in the late 90s um, we crashed there but it didn't really matter that much it was just it was a symptom of the excesses of the third turning it's like oh yep we we gambled too hard a um, couple boomers lost their pensions and their retirement accounts but nobody cares
1: fuck it
0: yeah move on um, then in 08 okay now that's the what we would define as the transition point in 08 financial crisis the world's ending Everything is in conversation now. All the politics change, right? You can see a very different response to a, a similar catalyst. Maybe, not, maybe it was bigger in a way and more mm. global, um, but we responded differently, right? Uh, similar in, let's see, in the 19-teens, um, I think the Germans sunk the Lusitania boat, however how that's pronounced, and nobody really cared. Then you go to Pearl Harbor. Okay, Lusitania is in the third turning, Pearl Harbor is in the fourth turning. As soon as that happened, it's global war tomorrow, right? And why Mm. is that? Because the people actually didn't want to go to war in the third turning because we don't recognize the problems yet. In the fourth turning, we're ready to go to war. It has to be decisive. We have to make bold action to save the world. And so everyone was in support of the war, Um, similar to going to the Middle East, right? Nobody wanted to go to war in the early 2000s. We had to have uh, 9-11. Then we had to have our politicians lying about weapons of mass destruction just to convince us to go to the Middle East, where now if, let's say... Taiwan? Taiwan, yeah, China, something bad happens globally, I think the the, the appetite would be greater. Um, But it has to feel existential. It has to be a real catalyst.
1: Okay, let's talk about Taiwan, because that's a good lens for this, because uh, certainly we've seen... China uh, completely destroy many of the freedoms that people enjoy in Hong Kong. Hong Kong now is not what it was. It, you know, under I think when did British rule end? Something like the 90s when Chris Patton left. Is it Chris Patton? I'm trying to remember things from my childhood. But um, yeah, I went to Hong Kong a couple of years ago. I had a great time. I wouldn't be going there now because f- everything I've heard, um, they're in there replacing local Hong Kong laws with Chinese laws and um, it's now just part of the Chinese state. Now the rhetoric is Taiwan is next and Taiwan itself is expressing concerns this is going to happen. Um, and I think the the one interesting factor for the West is with regards to the, uh, is it the Taiwanese semiconductor company? Like there is this global chip shortage and I'm I'm... You know, I'm not sure what the catalyst is or why. Yeah, you know, it, it, whether China just wants to reclaim what it thinks is its part of sovereign China, or is because it feels like it needs to protect its own supply chains by having control of the semiconductor company. We also have uh, potential of build-up of troops on the Russia-Ukraine border. So there's two scenarios there that have potential uh, potentials for wars that multiple countries would get involved in might. Only my only thing there when I consider might war happen, might war break out is that it feels like the stakes are too big for for a global war now.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, from China's perspective, they're ready to take their place. Yes. Right. And Xi said he I forgot what it is, but he like classified himself on the same tier as Mao. Mm-hmm. Right. So he's essentially saying I'm a supreme leader. and yep. I'm the man. And if I'm him. Thinking through his lens, I want to leave a mark on the world, and so what? One, what's one way to do that? Unify all of China, claim more territory, right? And so Hong Kong and Taiwan, in my mind, it feels like they're going to be China. I don't, I don't think that there's any way out of that at this point. Um, and okay, the petrodollars fraying around the world. The U.S. is not in the same position as we were um, after World War II, right? We're we're way, way, way behind, and. US foreign investment is declining. Um, You know, Afghanistan made us look horrible. Um, Lynn Alden had a great tweet, which was essentially that uh, US trade deficits flow to China primarily. And China doesn't buy US treasuries anymore with that extra money. They buy hard assets. Mm -hmm. And so we're essentially funding China (laughs) to take a stronger position geopolitically. And China plays for keeps, Mm -hmm. right? They, They use the uh, confessions of an economic hitman model of like the IMF and stuff where they'll give loans to a uh, recent example, Uganda, Uganda couldn't pay their loans. So China says, great, we own your airport now. There you go. Yeah. And so they're doing this all over the world. Soft they're doing imperialism. It fast. Exactly. They're doing it very fast. And so I don't even see, I mean, I think our allies might not be our allies forever, right? China is the trade trade partner for most of the world now. They're the largest commodity importer. And you know, to counter all this, China also doesn't produce any innovation. China just takes what steals the West it. does, steals it, and scales it. Yeah. And they're really good at it and they're ruthless. And so, yeah, like I don't I don't think China's model is a good model. And I think but I think it's a scary competitive model for at least a short term. And yeah, innovation has to happen somewhere for our species, or we're gonna screw this whole thing up, and certainly not coming from China. Um with regards to timing, I think. Um, Well, Beijing Summer Olympics next year, so they're not going to do anything before that. But okay, next fall, next winter, what's stopping China from making steps? And they'll probably slowly do it like they're doing with Hong Kong, and pretty soon it'll be too late. Yeah, TSMC, chip fabs, that's very scary. Normies are aware of supply chain crisis and normies know that chip shortages are bad, right? They see the car prices go up and whatever. Um, And okay, America is responding. scrambling to put chip foundries in the US, and um, Arizona, Texas, etc. Um, it's going to take a decade and they're mm-hmm. probably not going to be very good for a long time, right? It's the most capital intense thing that humans do today. It's really hard. It's, very, it's also really bad for the environment. All the inputs pollute really poor, really bad. And we'll see how the ESG crowd <laughs> balances that one. Yeah, this, that will be
1: rationalized though.
0: I mean, hopefully. Or maybe like Mex- maybe we just export all the bad stuff to Mexico. I don't know.
1: So, I I still don't see, I still don't see international conflict over Taiwan. maybe I'm being naive. I just don't see it. I I, I agree. Yeah, but one scenario that does keep coming up, uh, you've mentioned it here. I've had other people mention it. Is potential for civil. I don't want to say war because it might not be. I don't know how it plays out. I mean. I don't want to predict something that sounds ludicrous to some people, but there has been uh, a lot of talk of uh, Texas. Danny, I always get this wrong, don't I? <laughs> I always say <laughs> Succeed, succeeding. <not> succeeding. <laughs> succeeding. Um, but also I've heard a counterpoint whereby maybe in the next election, Trump comes back, Trump wins. He probably wins if he comes back. Word, California, Washington, yeah. Would those, would those Democrat stakes say we're not going to be part of this? Like, is, like, is this something that's realistic that you're thinking about?
0: I think it is realistic. Okay. Um, it's not in the central government's best interest. And so I don't assign a very high probability of this happening in any short period of time. However, the mood is right for this, right? You, you can feel the difference between the coastal elites and the, the middle of the country, rural people. Um, they genuinely hate each other. And the coastal elites take the position that we are the smart, educated people. So our opinion is true and, and it's right. And the Trump supporter, anti-vaxxer, rural people are all racist, bigoted dummies. And so, and, and the rural people are like, hey, we're really not like that. And so there's a huge tension. And a recent poll, maybe five years ago, 28% of Americans said that they support secession. And that was five years ago. It's probably gone up a lot since then. And so let's say a third of the population is supporting that. That's a large amount. That's more, that's roughly the same as what the uh, Revolutionary War, um, what the Patriots wanted compared to the Loyalists. So the conditions are right. Um, Then you have all these like, okay, COVID is a tension point. You have um, Bitcoin mining and energy is a tension point other political things. And so federalism in America is, is coming out now, right? Florida's mm-hmm. governors saying one thing, New York saying the opposite, Texas, California opposites. And so, yeah, I think that the, the tensions are real. Will it be some sort of like North versus South, big bloody war? I don't think so. I think it would be more like a chaotic fog of war, decade of isolated incidents and escalating violence, and eventually just having to redraw the lines on the map. Um, again, I would give this a lower probability. What do you mean
1: by redraw the lines?
0: Like who's part of the United States? Yes, yeah, that's what oh, I yeah. thought you meant. Are there separate states or are there not? Um, I don't know. Like, To me, I'm very supportive of states' rights. I think that's yeah. the most important thing that America has going. Yep. Um, like, Innovation comes from competition.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You need separate silos to compete with each other in order to produce good ideas. And you also need a frontier which is another angle. You need some place where the the innovators can go where they don't feel stifled, right? That's why all the brain drains coming into Bitcoin space and and the greater decentralized, whatever we're going to call this space, it's because the old world's dying and it's boring and it's lame and there's just a tight box around it. Then you come in Bitcoin land and you can have radical ideas, you can bounce them off other people and that's where the real innovation goes.
1: So, you know, traveling around the US, states' rights is something I'm like most envious of the US living in the UK. I can't move anywhere else in the UK and materially change my life because the rules are different. I can go to Scotland and there's slight differences and I can go to Wales and there's like slight differences but there's no fundamental difference. There's no different approach to taxations or there's no different approach to... Um, Marijuana laws, we we, we are the same wherever you go. Whereas you come here and, you know, look, if I wanted to move to the U.S., I'd have a choice. If I move to New York, I have to deal with X, Y, Z. If I move to Texas, I have ABC. And it's like I have those options on different taxes, different laws, different ways of life, like quite, it's quite different. And it goes back to one of those things Balaji talks about where that vote with your feet is actually much more powerful than the ballot now. You talked about the brain drain into Bitcoin, but there has been that brain drain out of Silicon Valley and certainly people moving out of San Francisco who who are moving to places, let's say, let's be honest, they're red states, they're moving to Florida, they're moving to Texas, maybe some few to Wyoming. But you're seeing that. What I don't understand is, because I'm not American, you might know more about this, if Texas made that decision, what could the federal government's response be? Can they block it? How does do we even know how it works?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. I think the opposing forces are what does the constitution say? Yeah. And then what does the executive branch who appears to dismiss the constitution um, very confidently have to say? Right? Like OSHA, the OSHA law trying to make all Americans um, be vaccinated to go to work, um, that's probably not constitutionally acceptable. So what the government did is they tried to find a sneaky backdoor way to use OSHA to enforce it, right? And so the the tricky part is, are we going to enforce the constitutional rights or are we gonna let the government squash it? And that's, I think, the scariest point here. And it's also tying in like, okay, the Fed and the government are going to merge. Corporations and government are going to merge. That's very scary, right? If government and corporations are like, Friendly and friendly competition, that's good for the people. Mm-hmm. But if they team up, the little guy is in bad shape, right? Then two of the main power sources are consolidated and we look really bad. And it brings me back to I think I saw this from Naval originally, but um, there's only two ways to coordinate society at scale cooperation or coercion, right? Cooperation would be free markets, coercion would be force. Um, do you want BTC? Do you want CBDC? Okay, the and I think that is true. And the central government wants power; it's in their best interest, but it's not the best interest for the people. And if we don't want state-enforced violence forever, then we need to push back on this. We need to preserve markets. We need to preserve this financial institution that is Bitcoin, that is non-discretionary and can't be politically captured. Um, otherwise, great. We get through another fourth turning. We put a band on it. We build new human institutions with slightly different you know, colors, and then in another 80 years, we're going to be doing the same thing again. Um, or we, we take this Bitcoin path and, and maybe this fourth turning doesn't lead to war. Um, if we want to be optimistic for a second,
1: I think- Definitely Bitcoin, want to be, I am optimistic.
0: Yeah, I think Bitcoin could serve as that institution and prevent the war, right? Before things get too bad, you're essentially just, as people wake up, they're, they're just adopting a new system rather than getting so bad that they feel the need to fight. Right. And we're seeing, for example, El Salvador. Um, I love this example. So whatever we want to say about Bukele and Mm -hmm. his authoritarian tendencies, um, he's bringing freedom money into into the city or sorry, into the country. So even if he screws up, he just empowered his people to not listen to him anymore. Okay, then what about the IMF? Okay, the IMF says, shakes their finger at Bukele and says, we're not going to give you a loan if you keep messing around with this Bitcoin thing. And what does Bukele do?
1: Say eat, eat a bag of dicks.
0: Yeah, he should post back at him, yeah. And then he goes, you know what? I'm going to crowdfund. This is important part. I'm going to crowdfund a billion dollars by selling a volcano bond. <laughs> just middle finger to the IMF. The U.S. is like, well, tensions are, are rising with El Salvador, right? So the old guard, all the old institutions, they just hate it. They can't stand this new power rising. And I think that's the thing that we need to latch on to. And you're seeing it with young people. The young people who are um, post-woke, let's say, mm-hmm. um, they're looking for new new sources of truth, new avenues. Why is Jordan Peterson massive? Because young people, mostly males, sort of feel disenfranchised by the current system and they go to a system that feels more true and more real. Um, that's what Bitcoin is, right? The facade is gone. The ledger is open. And, you know, come, come play in, in the new future and... That makes me very excited. And I think the nation state game theory is going to explode. And I think one more thing on this rant is, I think the most underpriced or underappreciated aspect of the whole, let's just call it in quotations, crypto space, is the fact that Bitcoin and energy are forming symbiosis. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some people are aware of that. But the second order and third order effects, I don't think have really hit the consciousness or the market yet. And what's happening is, These two industries are going to merge because they have economic incentives to do so. And simple economic incentives lead to positive externality on society. So every time a Bitcoin miner and an energy uh, producer merge, what happens? Okay, the Bitcoin miners are paying people to work. They're generating tax revenue. They're stabilizing the grid. They're reducing the energy costs for everyone nearby. So what happens? Bitcoin's co-opting local governments and they're saying, guess what? You're on our team now. And it's not, I, I use co-opt in kind of a playful term. It's really just economic incentives. They realize it's in their best interest to protect Bitcoin. And yeah. there's there's unlimited opportunities of this. Like, okay, volcano bonds, that's the sexy one. But you go into like um, Uganda. Or, yeah, Uganda has a unique example in some... Um, hydro, there's some geothermal all around Africa, and it makes sense to plug Bitcoin there. So then what? Governments all around the world are going to say, no, you, you can't do anything to Bitcoin. We love it. It, it makes it better for our people. Well, so that's gonna, what just
1: happened in Sweden.
0: Sweden said, yeah, we're ESG. Don't bring that stuff here.
1: You know, they said we should ban Bitcoin mining. And one of the, and I, this came up in my last interview with Nick Carter, one of the arguments, uh, one of the energy companies, uh, Danny, you can find that. One of the energy companies in um, Sweden came back and said, no, no, we need this, it, it makes it more, It more. makes us more efficient. Uh, I've just brought up a quote from Harry Saddock, because what, what you've been talking about with uh, Bitcoin and energy, just reminded me of what he said. What Bitcoin does, it demonetizes the political class and empowers the productive class. And I think that empowering the productive class is a really important element. That's what better money does for people. It takes the people who are just rent-seeking in our political structure and it says to them, "I'm sorry, you don't belong here because you don't produce anything or create any net economic, uh any net e- economic positive impact." Love that. Yeah. Love Harry too. He's great. He's fucking amazing. Yeah. You know, he just comes up with these. Just like I said to him, I was like, "Do you plant?" He's like, "No, I just they just come into my head."
0: That's beautiful. Yeah. And and to be honest, I've been spending all my mental energy in Bitcoin on mining. Interesting. Um, I think it's. It, it, I used to think it was just like a thing that was part of Bitcoin that yeah. didn't really matter. Yeah. And so I just totally totally underestimated it. And now I'm completely obsessed and leaning, you know, leaning into an energy revolution. And energy is foundational to our species. It is the absolute base commodity for everyone. If you want food, if you want energy to move around, to heat your house, to cool your house, all of that comes from the base. And so if Bitcoin is, it sort of is like a free market catalyst or a free market subsidy, it makes your capital investment cheaper. It makes your ROI faster. Right? It literally stabilizes the grid and reduces prices. And so if we scale that for 100 years, what, is, what does our planet look like?
1: Right? Well, it's one of those positive externalities that Satoshi could no way have planned for.
0: True. Yeah, that's true. He said one CPU, one vote. Yeah. And now we're saying, let's uh, mine Bitcoin with volcanoes. <laughs>
1: Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. And this show is brought to you by Compass Mining. And you know what? They're not just a sponsor. I am also a customer of theirs, and I am now mining Bitcoin. And you know what? I've been mining for three months now. I've already paid off one of my S19s, and I'm close to paying off the second one. It is so good to be back mining. And you know what? I just really love these guys. Compass makes mining accessible to everyone. And as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded and now anyone can mine Bitcoin with Compass. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility and they will do everything else for you. If you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-G gio Next up is BlockFi and you can now earn a $250 bonus in Bitcoin when you sign up with BlockFi as they have recently launched their BlockFi Rewards Visa signature card. Now for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, the Block 5 Rewards Credit Card is the easiest way for you to earn Bitcoin because you get 1.5% back in Bitcoin on every card purchase and there is no annual fee. It is the smartest way to stack stats with Bitcoin rewards on every purchase. You can also earn 2% in Bitcoin on every purchase over $50,000 of annual spend. And you can also get 3.5% back in Bitcoin during your first three months of card ownership. But please do make sure you check out the terms for this. Now, if you're interested in finding out more, then please head over to BlockFi.com forward slash Peter, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com forward slash P-E-T-E-R. And next up, we have Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you to take custody of your Bitcoin, and I have been a Ledger customer since way back in early 2017. And the Nano S I bought back then, yep, I'm still using that bad boy now. Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device. And you can even connect your Nano S to your Android phone to manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up today, we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only buying. I've not sold a single sat through Gemini because we are in a bull market. And you know what? I just don't want to sell my Bitcoin. I'm a hodler. You're a hodler, right? Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I also set up a DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash w b d. All right, we're going to come back to uh, Bitcoin. Uh, Just one other thing I want to talk to you about is uh, when we recorded last time, it was November 20. So it was about a year ago. Uh, We were good, I don't know, what's that? Seven months into a global crisis of sorts. But since then, last year, it's expanded to be mandates- Uh, We're seeing mandates with regards to uh, passports. We're seeing mandates with regards to vaccines. And this is splitting society. We have those who are fully supportive. You said people who would give up uh, freedom for security. We have people who fully support mandates, fully support locking down half of society. Well, I mean in Austria you cannot leave the house less once a day for exercise if you've not got a vaccine. And I believe, and again they have to be fact checked, I believe uh, by f- maybe February next year, you have to be vaccinated. If not, you will be fined, and if you don't pay the fine, you can go to jail. Now that is a. I'm I'm not a like conspiracy theorist. I'm not extreme right. I think that's fucking scary, and that can fracture society. And that could that these kind of decisions could lead to revolutions, and they could lead to civil wars.
0: I agree. I, I think you framed it well. It's very 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 scary. Um, And it happened fast. Right. Mm -hmm. It was incremental. But if you look back just a year or two years from now, life is very different. And let's let's go through this a little bit, the mandates and how it ties in. Um, The left, again, the center of mass in politics is left leaning compared to what it was, let's say, a decade or two ago. And their position is we're all in this together. It's the big, grand war against covid. If you're not with us, you're against us. The ends justify the means, these are the phrases, and we just have to to act. And the right says, well, we shouldn't trust government, we shouldn't trust pharma. Our long-term rights are more important than short-term security. And so how how do we break this down? I think charitably, the central planners are just reacting to their incentives, and we could say that they're overreacting. They're trying too hard and doing too much. You can't just stand there, right? You gotta do something. And so, but what does that lead to? That leads to unintended consequences. Mm Their intentions, let's, let's be charitable. Let's say their intentions are pure. The outcomes are going to be really bad. And so I don't care what your intentions are. Your outcomes matter. And so I think that's the most important thing to focus on here is what are the actual outcomes? And from my perspective, it looks like a, a, a money grab, a power grab. Uh, it looks like taking advantage of a situation for your own individual gain, never mind the cost. Um, it looks like guarding information. It looks like free speech is questionable. It looks like science is now religion, right? These are these are very dangerous paths. And I think we should be vigilant about this because you know, we shouldn't give up our rights for some vague sense of security that doesn't even appear to be working. Um, and so again, politics is now, we got rid of religion, right? Fourth turning hits an all time low and we replace it with something. We always have that God-shaped hole in our heart We're attaching it to politics, so it's no surprise. Um, And it's become so big. And to your point, the division here is massive. Mm -hmm. Families do not see each other for Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. Um, Families destroyed don't talk to each other. What's going to happen if the tension boils over and the state pushes too hard and then the opposition says, "Okay, it's time to fight? It feels like right now everyone's digging in their heels more and more and more. It doesn't feel like anyone's budging an inch. And so if that boils over, we could actually get into war. Um, I hope not. And the politicians are exaggerating the pain again and again for their own benefit. So they're adding fuel to the fire. And I think one more point here that's just really, really important is with regards to Fauci Mm -hmm. and science. So... Some congressmen, I think Rand Paul and a few other people, are essentially saying Fauci should step down, you're doing things poorly, whatever, step down. And Fauci goes on and says, you can't criticize me. If you criticize me, you're criticizing science itself because I speak for science, which is the most terrifying, dangerous, also ironically, the opposite of what science is, right? Science is an error-correcting method. Science is a process for uncovering truth. There's no such thing as science is settled. You can't trust science. It's a complete opposite of that. You test science. You Mm -hmm. don't trust it. Um, And so, yeah, he's saying I'm the holy scripture when in reality he's making judgment calls about public policy. He's telling you how you can interact with your friends and family, who can buy food, who can travel. Um, None of that is scientific. And so to me, these are are very concerning things. Um, Where do we go from here? I don't know. It feels like a, quote, post-truth world where humanity seems to be unable to find truth. And the narratives are, we're so focused on these narratives and they seem to be just not not zeroing on truth. They, like our, our sense-making ability is just going haywire. And the people with the least amount of scruples are willing to sacrifice everything to move the herd around.
1: You, this post-truth world is interesting because I'm wondering whether, what's the incentive here? Are people disinterested in truth? And then they're more interested in their echo chamber. And I'll give you a a lens for this. Just uh, this last couple of weeks uh, with regards to Australia. Australia has been something that a lot of people in Europe and America have very strong opinions on with regards to their response to COVID. I'm not picking a side here. They made a decision as pretty much an island country to lock down their entire borders and try and prevent COVID getting in. And they had... A relative amount of success, and as a just for the people listening who are losing their shit right now, I'm not saying I support this. All I'm saying is that was their strategy, and they did quite a good at keeping COVID out. And you know, as part of their strategy, they had some things that felt very authoritarian. You could not leave the co- Danny here, based in Australia. We had to write to the government to try and get him out to come and work. You know, it was a difficult process. Luckily, because he is British, we were able to do that. Um, but other people just cannot leave the country. People coming in are put into these camps. Now people look at them, and Tim Paul calls it a concentration camp, whatever. But they they've had this process of trying to, you know, prevent COVID within the country. Over the last couple of weeks, stories have come out about these uh, regional Aboriginal communities which have had uh, uh, outbreaks of COVID now. I've tried to find the truth on this. There have been claims of forced vaccinations, people being taken away from their families and put into these camps Howard Springs, this uh, what they call a concentration camp. now there is opposing voices that are coming out and saying, you know, I uh, was speaking to Claire Lemon from Colette about it, somebody who Tim ball has gone hard at, and she's trying to say, no, it's not what you're what you're saying is not actually what's happening. These communities. Uh, of people where there could be 30 people living in a house, they have higher comorbidities, uh, an outbreak of COVID is more dangerous. What's happening is the... I, don't, I can't remember if the police or army but, but going in offering support, saying, look, if you're not vaccinated, here are vaccines. If, you con- if you're positive COVID, you should probably come to Howard Springs to protect your families. All I find is trying to find the truth, I find extremes. Trying to honestly say, look, I think I found some information, what's going on here, oh, you're a communist oh, you're supporting the left. Like there is punishment for trying to find the truth. There is reward for supporting your echo chamber. And I find that really challenging, Brandon.
0: It is challenging. And it's directly from the fourth turning thesis also, which is that we've identified that it's crisis time Mm -hmm. and we have to get together, pick a team and we're going to battle. It doesn't matter if there are consequences, there are, um, but the ends justify the means. Right. And so people select a team and they go headstrong towards that team. No one's looking for truth. Right. Politics is our religion. Our identities are tied to what side we're on. Um, and so you see all these divisions and they're real. And you're right. Nobody's looking for truth. And that makes it really hard to figure out how to go forward. And in a way, it feels like a, a simulated war. Hmm. Right. Um, there's a quote I have here somewhere where it's essentially—I think it was a maybe William James quote. Uh, essentially, the, the thesis is you need war because war uh, achieves something in society and it leads to productive outcomes. And so, in a sense, humans like naturally go to these conflict points, not intentionally, but the outcomes are that we collectivize, we make radical change, and on the other side, theoretically, we're better for it. It's like we, we're hardened through this this crucible. And the long term's better. Um, I don't know how to solve that tension. I feel it in my personal life with friends, with family, tensions growing. Um, it really sucks. Yeah. And, and I've, I've had some like one-on-one long conversations with someone with very different political views than me. And the funny part is we're actually a lot closer than people think. And I think this is generally true in politics. We sort of like attack the straw man of each other rather than like, we're like 70% percent overlined, and let's just find the differences where we disagree. And it pretty much came down to the fact that I think we're responding a little bit too much to the threat. And they're saying, no, this threat's really big. We need to do whatever we can to solve it. And I think that's pretty much the divide here. Um, I think people are mostly trying to do the right thing, but again, the road to hell is paved. With with, good intentions, yeah. Yeah. So it doesn't matter what you think, doesn't matter what your intentions are. Um, Hayek had an amazing quote, it was like, uh, we, don't, we don't have an issue with problems, we have an issue with solutions, which is so beautiful. It's just yeah. the central planner instinct and they feel justified in their actions and they feel like they're doing the right thing. That's the scary part, right? They can totally defend their position. And my favorite, one of my favorite authors, Aldous Huxley, um, he also warned of the central planners in Brave New World. Yeah. And his interestingly, he wrote that in like the 40s, I think. And then he wrote another book a decade later called Brave New World Revisited. This is him just going, yes, I wrote that dystopia. Here's how things evolved. Here's, some, here's how to prevent, essentially, my dystopia from happening. And one thing stuck with me, which is that central planners view society as if we we're insects. right? You can just have the queen bee and all the worker bees just operate um, in this like hierarchical, rigid, um, super linear fashion. Um, however, humans aren't like that. We're more like a pack of wolves, or we're more like wolves who who operate in a pack because of collective benefit. Right? One wolf can't take down a moose, but a pack of wolves can. So they work together for a shared interest because incentives are aligned.
1: Just like Bitcoin. Just like Bitcoin. Just like Bitcoin. Okay, let me give you another angle on this. It's quite interesting. So I had a huge argument with my brother about a year, a year to eighteen months ago. Um, and we were discussing Trump, and I'm not a huge Trump fan, but I took the Trump side just to challenge my brother. My brother historically is being quite left, quite progressive. Um, obviously, cannot stand Donald Trump, and I took the other side and just kept challenging him, just kept like yeah, just poking a little bit, and it became this huge row. Um, and what's been really interesting, and is my brother, I've, you know, we've been orange pilling him, me and Danny and a couple other people over the last. 12 months, and it's worked, he's become super orange-pilled. And now, I'm not saying he would defend Trump, but I the, the topics we used to row about, we can now talk about in a civil way because through the lens of Bitcoin, I think he's realized that, uh, he's kind of realized the problems with central planning, which he didn't realize, I think, before. He, by the way, he'll listen to this and maybe tell me I'm wrong, but historically, he he believed in central planning. And i I think he, through the lens of Bitcoin, has realized central planning is completely and utterly flawed. But that came through Orange pill and him through Bitcoin. His first thing, he read Satoshi's white paper. He still cannot get his head around. It's like this is this was nine pages. The entire thesis for a new global system was theorized in nine pages. And since then he's just been going deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole, and his uh, the majority of his outlook on the world. Government and institutions has changed, and it's, it's a fascinating thing. But it was what Bitcoin did. It, which takes me to that, back to Bitcoin with you, is that Bitcoin. You know, you've talked about Bitcoin can be, the the thing that brings us together, that crosses the divide, that crosses the aisle, that hopefully brings solutions that maybe stops us heading into crisis. And but why is that? And and is it because I think one of I think the biggest thing, biggest lesson. I've taken from Bitcoin is time preference. And I wonder how much of the fourth turning cycle also is down to time preference.
0: Hmm. Good question.
1: Um,
0: first, I want to address what you said about Bitcoin. So yeah. it is this weird catalyst, this weird chaos agent that gives you a new lens on the world. And you have, to, you have to earnestly interact with it. Right. You can't have just a I read an article in The New York Times version of Bitcoin. You have to really get dirty with this thing, Uh and after doing that, you realize, okay, the problem Bitcoin solves is really big, and I didn't even know it existed.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Right. I was totally. It's totally sub perception. And then you go weird. Okay, what else do these Bitcoin people say? Oh, they talk about that too. Oh, maybe that's of a a similar problem. Maybe Bitcoin. Okay. And you just kind of follow. That's the rabbit hole, right? You start Mm -hmm. uncovering this. And then you're surrounded by this fraternity of truth seekers who have a similar interest in getting to the bottom of things. And then you play off each other. Now you're in a community. Then all of a sudden, which, you know, there's negative parts of communities and identity, but Mm -hmm. there's a lot of positive things here. And it leads people to the truth and then it attracts more truth seekers, right? And we don't get everything right, but at least the the rules of engagement are, um, your ideas matter more than your reputation, you know? what the quality of your thought not the quality of your credentials mm-hmm. and that's a much better place to build the world on right we we need to lean into that and if you look at bitcoin as an institution it is that right it it's like it automates what central planners do and it prevents the unintended consequences that central planners automatically lead to
1: it's a bit like uh, everyone kisses Elon Musk's ass and we all told him to go fuck himself <laughs> yeah that's a
0: perfect way to describe <laughs> Just the bitcoiners fuck up. Your credentials don't matter. Yeah. What's the quality of your thought? You can be an anonymous space cat on the internet and people will take you seriously because of your proof of work, mm-hmm. right? And how opposite of that? Like in politics today, we select for mouthpieces who can look good and regurgitate the talking points and sway public opinion to get elected. We're not optimizing for the people who build things, who take risks, who you know do the work.
1: It's totally backwards. We're rewarding the pr- productive class, as Harry said. Exactly right. Interesting. So how how does how does Bitcoin save us from crisis?
0: The one point we mentioned already was, yep. um, it's a pressure release valve, mm-hmm. right? So before it gets too bad, you'll most people naturally will look for a solution once the problem's real, and a lot of them are going to find Bitcoin. A lot of them already have, right? You see, developing countries adopting Bitcoin in mass because they actually need it. And that really pisses off the credentialed class of the New York Times for like, I know about economics. Um, and so that's one way. You you have a real problem, you identify it, Bitcoin's here for you when you're ready. And so that theoretically saves people from getting to desperation, right? That's kind mm-hmm. of like the emergent micro that builds up over time. Um, then coming the, the, I mean
1: from the Can top, I add something in there? Yeah. So w- one of the interesting points in that is people look to leaders or opinion leaders or thought leaders with regards to you know various issues what we're seeing is like some of these new thought leaders in this new kind of post mainstream media world are coming towards Bitcoin so we've talked about Eric Weinstein he's like flirting around the edges of Bitcoin I did a thing with him now Breed loves done a whole thing with him he's definitely interested in Bitcoin and interested in Bitcoin as we watched Jordan Peterson the other day get Orange pill by Saverdean. I mean, the energy moment with him when he realized you can move energy around the world with Bitcoin was like like watching him go, wow, like, fuck, I need to think about this. You know, we're starting to orange pill like important opinion leaders, which are the people who can like bring more people into realizing, hey, this might be the solution because people like Jordan Peterson and Eric Weinstein, they're always looking at the problems in society. They're, they're commenting on them. They're going on to Rogan or... They're going on to Lex or whoever's shows and they're talking about these issues. We're now arming them with Bitcoin.
0: Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, Jordan Peterson's probably the most important Bitcoiner, I think.
1: I think I agree.
0: And at least for this stage that we're in, uh, I think Michael Saylor and Bukele have a unique spin. It's like the corporate model, the, the state model. But Jordan Peterson's model is like the people who already value personal responsibility are so ready for Bitcoin, they just don't know it yet, right? It's a lot easier to orange pill his, his followers than it is to, um, you know, the progressive left wing of American politics. It's going to be an uphill battle, right? You're going to have to yep. fight them along every single step. All of, their, um, all of their priors fight Bitcoin. But Jordan Peterson's the opposite.
1: Well, yeah, but I think we've missed a trick with that. Because we have this ESG fight and we've all focused on the E, but actually Bitcoin really supports the S and the G, the social and the governance. Like I think if you, there was a, a Dan Moorhead at Pantera wrote this whole piece about ESG and people missing the S and the G part. Like everything has been focused on the E because it's an easy attack vector. But I, and, and you know, this has come up in a few interviews recently that I am worried about Bitcoin becoming politicized, uh, you know, we talk about Jordan Peterson and Eric Weinstein, but also there's this like new class of politician who is becoming orange-billed. We started with namus We had uh, Warren Davison. We've now got Ted Cruz, <laughs> which always surprises me. But also we're getting reached out by people who are kind of Congress hopefuls who are campaigning on the campaign trail. A lot of them are starting to adopt Bitcoin, talking about sound money because they realize they've got to serve their constituents who are being... They have in their like the savings and uh, uh, purchasing power destroyed by inflation. They're realizing Bitcoin's an answer. So like this is whole group now.
0: Yeah, I I think you touched on something really important, which is that Bitcoin has something for all political flavors. Yeah. Right. The left actually loves Bitcoin. They just don't know it yet. Yeah. And it's packaged up in this like brutish, aggressive, in your face tone which is kind of like a holdover of the early times in Bitcoin's history. And I think Bitcoin now is starting to um, attract more normie-friendly voices, right? Like a Lynn Alden can speak to anyone and command respect, yep. whereas insert X hardcore Bitcoiner from the early days, they probably can't get the message across. So the message was never actually even being wrestled with. And so I think there's there's a whole like progressive Bitcoiners thing on Twitter that's growing um, I think that's a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. Bitcoin is fair money. How could you not be supportive of this like institution that doesn't require politicians or bankers? Well, like, how is Elizabeth Warren not obsessed with Bitcoin, her, her tirade against the banks? Well, yeah. here you go.
1: I, I had the exact same conversation with Nick Carter earlier. Like her, her you know, she went after Minuchin and she went after the link between Wall Street. She was basically saying there's an arm of Wall Street within the White House. Um, but I think what it is is they've been misled by the FUD. They've seen the top layer of FUD or they've seen a bunch of people get rich and they don't like that wealth disparity. I just want to bring up this Parker Lewis quote that's brilliant. So he said, liberals are going to love Bitcoin when they figure out what it will do for lower income families, but Democrats will hate it. Conservatives will love Bitcoin when they figure out what it will do for the budget deficit, but Republicans will hate it.
0: That's funny. Yeah, There's a lot of truth to that. There is. But Um,
1: but I I, I do worry about this... Bitcoin becoming another political weapon, and we are definitely seeing more of the right, more you know, people in Congress or the Senate who are interested in Bitcoin. It certainly, there certainly is a sway to the right. Yeah,
0: I, it's absolutely true, and it, it makes more sense on the nose for the right, of course. Um, but I think the the problem that the left needs to overcome, and I don't think this is even overcomable, but I think it's like kind of a tension point is. Um, The left wants strong government, generally. The right wants less government, right? And so the left would be more in favor of the idea of Keynesian economics, where you manage the economy. Mm -hmm. And they're just like, yeah, we just need the smart people at the top and we're good to go. And we just have to protect all the evil billionaires from getting too much power and redistribute wealth so everyone's fair. Um, Bitcoin is essentially recognizing the fact that we shouldn't have people in charge of the money. And that is a radical idea generally, and extremely hard for the left to grasp, because they're always the, you know, the intellectuals and don't worry, we'll solve it by jamming all the people together.
1: But they want redistribution of income. They do. And that's a hard thing to get over.
0: Yeah, it is. I think over the transitionary period with Bitcoin, it's, you know, the faster Bitcoin's adopted, the more carnage there'll be. Right. And I think that there's a risk there. Um, but like, okay, we exported all of our manufacturing jobs, right? We're not going to just turn that ship around and produce labor jobs, like reasonable middle-class jobs. We're not going to just do that in a a day, right? It's going to take a decade, two decades, three decades. And so, yeah, we can like argue about sound money and if that's moral or whatever, but the alternative to sound money is the state steals from people. And on paper redistribution, okay, I can get, get down with. Um, sometimes it's unfair and you, you don't want to have your neighbor starving.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I, I can get down with that in, in, in an intellectual sense. However, what that actually comes, what that leads to, is a cartel of the rich and powerful making rules for them at the expense. They don't care about the little guy. They throw the little guy's scrap so he shuts up. It's mm-hmm. bread and circuses, right? And so there's, there's a difference between like the idea of what you want philosophically and then what humans do with too much power. And I think that's the fundamental thing Satoshi identified. Um, Power gets abused. Humans do that, um, even with good intentions. And so I think we have to bite the bullet here and and separate money from state and go through the hardships that that comes. Um, We're already going through the hardships, by the way. Without Bitcoin, the world's messed up. And so we we can't pretend that Bitcoin's the iceberg that sinks the Titanic. It's not like that. It's Bitcoin's the life raft. The Titanic's already sinking. And so I think we need to lean into the fact that less human oversight is actually better. Um, but again, that's a radical idea, that's that's markets also. The left is kind of concerned about markets because what they view as capitalism, it's not working wealth inequality. Well, that's not from markets. Markets and, and, and uh, distribution of, of decision-making, that's what creates the wealth in the beginning. Um, so yeah, it's a big tangled, big tangled mess, but I think it's time to bite
1: the bullet. Could, could the fourth turning war be a war on money? War for money.
0: I think so. Yeah, I I think the state will try to centralize power and create a CBDC. Um, I think China will. So okay, two things. One, China could encroach. Their version of a monetary reset might be different than the West. That could create tension. Um, Also, I could see the West, Europe, and America uh, creating CBDCs. And then maybe people don't actually want that um, because it it actually is bad.
1: but communicating—that's gonna be hard.
0: I agree. People are gonna love CBDCs
1: at first. They're gonna love it. Yep. Um, I—I've tried to talk to people about this, try to frame it for them, try to make them understand what this actually means. I mean, I don't even like the loss of uh, physical banknotes. I—I I, I despise the thought of going to a world of just digital money. I mean, unless it's Bitcoin. But like, I hate that idea. Mm.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really important point. CBDCs are gonna be popular through the fourth turning lens, the mood is, let's collectivize, let's make radical change, let's make it fair again. And CBDCs will be pitched that way. Um, Secretly, or maybe not secretly, I hold out the hope that the American political establishment or members of that will identify Bitcoin as the right solution for America long term. And I actually think that that's true. I don't think we want to copy China, Mm -hmm. because we're fundamentally different and the things that make the West good are, are different than what makes China good. And so if we adopt their version of social credit scores, centralized control, I just think it will be incongruent with the people here. And I think that that's, that matters. And so I'm holding hope out for individuals to bump into Bitcoin through their own incentives locally, realize that this is good for them, and have that emergent process happen in America. Right? We're seeing mayors, we're seeing governors, senators, congressmen, energy companies, corporations, individuals, it's happening. Um, now, is that force strong enough? Will it build enough momentum in order to uh, actually compete with the central planning class? And the more the clown world continues to screw up, the more Bitcoiners we get, right? It's just a, And it's a one-way street. Mm. You don't come to Bitcoin and then go, yeah, never mind. I would like to go back to wage slavery, please. Never happens.
1: Yeah, I think this is why... The argument or the pushback against um, altcoins is also super important because right now altcoins, you know, shitcoins, they are certainly winning the war and narrative against Bitcoin right now because they're fun and they're exciting and they're sponsoring Miami Heat Stadium and, and shit like that. And uh, you can get rock JPEGs and you can get, you know, go to parties and there's a lot of money going into this. It's all exciting. Bitcoin's kind of like boring. we We want to separate money and state yada yada. But I, I I think at the same time we have to like really stand our ground with this. And you know, I think Parker Lewis and the people in Texas are doing a really great job. They've identified like we can make Texas the Bitcoin state. And they are arming themselves and they're arming politicians, they're arming Governor Abbott, they're arming uh, uh, Ted Cruz are arming people with why this is good, why this is good for the energy sector, why this is good for Texas, and I feel like that seed. And I know there's multiple seeds in the US. There's one here in Florida and one in Wyoming, etc., and all over the place. But that seed that's being, yeah, you know, that's that's been planted there by Parker Lewis and growing It to me, it's the kind of like it's the opposite of what's being done with the Chris Dixon, a sixteen Z crowd up in Silicon Valley, where they're trying to push all kinds of shit, Worldcoin and all well, that fucking bollocks, Web3, token, bullshit.
0: Yeah. I, a couple of points. One, yes, the whole greater crypto space, it has more mass appeal. Mm-hmm. Normies do not have the priors to understand why Bitcoin's important. right? Most people get into the space for something other than Bitcoin. If you're in the West, you're looking at technology, you're looking at blockchain saves everything, and that's, that's a really good funnel for Bitcoin, actually. Right? not everyone, but a lot of people end up finding Bitcoin, go deep enough to appreciate what it is. And so I think it's important to recognize that the greater crypto space is going to be a top of the funnel thing for Bitcoin. And I don't, I go back and forth on this, like, should we try to scold people or should we just try to like steer them in the right direction? Like how, you know, where are we on, where are we at in that spectrum? And I don't think forcefully telling people doesn't work, dude, you know, even if we're right, it, it, the, the student is ready when the teacher appears, right? Mm-hmm. They're not ready for that message. And so it's almost like build content bridges um, to show that or um, do a better job of speaking to people outside our ecosystem, more normie content. And I think that that's happening. Um, and so that's one way to look at it. Another thing is Bitcoiners are probably going to be uh, looked at as wrong for a while. And that that's the hard part here is like... we've We've got used to that. I, I think so. I think so. Um, but not, not from the greater sp- like cultural thing, yes. But I think there's going to be a point where like the whole crypto thing is big in the consciousness and it looks like Bitcoin doesn't matter. But all of that is hype and, and fast money. And there, there's some maybe kernels of truth there, but it's mostly inflated by hype and fiat money and end of the debt cycle gambling, which is common during this period. But in the long game, Bitcoin users are sticky. That's the difference here. There's no sticky users to these blockchain projects.
1: Nope, that's very true. They come and
0: go. People adopt Bitcoin in the West uh, because they recognize what it is, but most people outside of the West adopt Bitcoin because they need it. You can't tell someone in Nigeria to go sign up for ESG blockchain DAO to save the world kiddies. Like, they don't give a shit about that. They care about solving a real problem in their life, and Bitcoin solves that. Lightning Network solves that. And so... Maybe Bitcoin grows a little bit slower during the hype, but the users don't leave. That's the difference. And it yeah. gets stronger every time in planting the roots. And it's, it's, it's actually okay that it's like that, right? Because we don't need Coinbase users as much as we need self-sovereign Bitcoiners who, who care about what this thing is. Again, going back to the previous point, we can't lose the principles of Bitcoin just for some shiny, you know, bull market nonsense. We, we, we need to stick to our principles because this thing is special. It is unique. It, it is sovereignty as a service. It's property rights for everyone. It's a non-governmental monetary system. This is so unique. And the, the greater crypto space does not understand how unique it is. They think copy, paste, proof of stake, and you're good. Mm-hmm. That is nonsense. And so my call to arms would be like, we need to protect this thing. I, I think uh, Bitcoin sign guy has my favorite quote. We need to provide cover fire for Bitcoin until it gets through the door. right? We need to bring this Trojan horse into the future to where it really can't be stopped. Arguably we're there, but I think that is the key. Preserve the principles, get it to the point where it's too big to fail, and then it doesn't matter what happens in crypto land.
1: Well, I think crypto land needs a bit more pain as well. I, mean, I, I don't think 6.2% inflation is enough pain for people. I think people need a lot more pain, and I think uh, you know we talk about the cycle, uh, maybe not ending. We don't want it to break, but in some ways, the cycle breaking is good for the Bitcoin versus crypto kind of disparity. In that, uh, the crypto people go through far more pain in a winter, in a crypto winter, than the Bitcoin people. And usually, you know, it was a crypto winter of 2018 that made me go Bitcoin only. Like I had that, so, and, I, and a lot of other people have been through that. So in some reason, some some ways, I do want a crypto winter because I want to lead more people to Bitcoin.
0: Yeah, I, I think the NFT winter is going to be Dude. diabolical Dude. when they realize that you can't market sell your JPEG. No, someone has to pick the one you have and sell it, and then it's going to be a race to the bottom, and it's going to be bloody out there, um, no doubt. But I don't think we should cheer for it. I think I think a better approach is like, yeah, like, Told you so. That feels good. But I think it's actually a net positive. I think it's more important that we think about this like um, and just separate Bitcoin Mm -hmm. intellectually, philosophically, however you want to do this. Bitcoin's unique. The rest of the stuff is competing against each other. And that's fine. There's nothing inherently wrong with it. There's maybe some morality here and there. But I. I, It's not Bitcoin. It's not Bitcoin. And it's better that way. So there might be an NFT bear market that's horrible while Bitcoin's up. 200% Two hundred percent in the year right. I think that I think that's the right approach going forward is like Bitcoin is what it is we know what it is now, or maybe we don't it feels like we do, but that's very arrogant to say because previous points we thought it was something else so I'll humbly submit we're probably wrong about Bitcoin but we're closer to right
1: well I think it's it's quite individual what bitcoin is true to different people i yeah you know, i don't know what it is to you uh to me it's like a whole bunch of things, but it's God, this is gonna sound hyperbolic and cringe, but like it's a bit of a teacher. If you know what I mean.
0: Absolutely. I mean, people call it a meso- me- messianic object from the future. <laughs> Just calling it a teacher is pretty pedestrian.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Fair. I know. I know it's gonna come across as cringe, and my crypto listeners are gonna be like, "You fucking maxies!" But like, it it is a bit of a teacher. Like, all I can tell you is, my life before Bitcoin. It's very different to my life after Bitcoin, in terms of thinking about money, life, health a bit. <laughs> my health could be better, but like it, it is a bit of a teacher in that way. I agree,
0: and it's very, very emergent, right? You're interacting with this thing that can't be changed, and so your only choice is to submit to this thing.
1: Submit to Bitcoin.
0: Yeah, which sounds kind of that creepy and weird. Does, um, but it, I mean it in like a. It really does happen. Like Bitcoin teaches you things just through interacting with it. If you hold the asset, you're incentivized to think long term. Mm-hmm. Right. So just that alone is enough to teach you to lower your time preference.
1: Isn't it weird though? It is. It's, it's extremely
0: so weird. weird. Why is this white paper and software so powerful that people re architect their lives around it? That's madness.
1: Well, it's because money is the the lubricant for trade right it's it's, it's the, the the way we interact with each other like money is the base of society right and um, when it's corrupted you know you have to spend it quick you know you live a different time of lifestyle when you have the, a, a hard money a sound money where you have to think long term you have to think about everything long term so yeah i mean it's weird but it kind of makes sense
0: it does make sense and a lot of people critique Seifedean in the Bitcoin standard for extrapolating what high preference does to culture. Yeah, um, And okay, I get why you make that critique, like maybe he took a couple of cheap shots at things he doesn't like personally that maybe it's not a strong connection,
1: maybe not. I, I have opinions on that.
0: <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, however, if you look at just the Bitcoin community, yeah. um, individuals make radical change, so that's happening. So maybe he took some liberties, but you can't argue with the facts on the ground, which is that Bitcoiners are getting in shape. They're thinking long term. They're having babies. It is a radically different culture. And it's not just attracting the people that are naturally into it. Like I was left leaning politically my whole life until Bitcoin, like quote, embarrassingly left compared to how I feel, feel about things now. Um, and it radically changed that perspective for me. Um, It gave me an out. I I was a nihilistic, uh, intellectual lefty making phone calls for Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016. Like live for the moment, trade all your things for experiences, like comically looking back. (laughs) And Bitcoin gave me a new lens to see the world. And it actually integrated different parts of myself, like different identities if I go back in my life, like in college and after college, I was like, frat boy, business guy, sales douchebag, make a lot of money, exterior world. And then I got to the end of that cycle and I was like, I don't want to be this. So I went the complete opposite way. I went like hippie traveler nomad for five years with the wife, just backpacking around the world, Um, literally complete opposite. Uh Then I came back to Bitcoin, pendulum swing comes back, swung back and maybe a little bit more in the middle. I can integrate the market's capitalism external side of me and I can integrate that like You know, it's not all about material, have a good life experiences, relationship side. Um, Integrate those two. And that's what Bitcoin is. It's kind of like, and that's why I say there's something for everyone, because depending on what you see in it, what you need, you know, it, it presents itself differently. And, you know, that's my personal story. You extrapolate it on everyone. And so, again, sound money or lower time preference, it has dramatic impacts on people. And then you multiply that by this fraternity of people. Who have similar values in my mind I've always felt like slightly as an outcast um, yeah I can chameleon into a little that's why
1: you found Bitcoin
0: correct that's why I found it when I did you did yeah right in the future people will find Bitcoin they don't have to be outsiders uh-huh. but earlier that's that's a strength and also I'm very highly disagreeable also common with Bitcoiners but I guess the point I'm driving to is then you have this community that sharpens your thinking that pushes you to go farther people I respect. So if I write something, I want it to be good, right? And there's like this social pressure to be the best version of yourself because you have a community. And humans are tribal. I don't think we should deny that. Um, It's in our evolutionary DNA and we see it play out and people say it's a bad thing. I don't think it's necessarily bad. I think it's just how we are and it can be bad. It can manifest itself poorly. But the reality is, Tribes hold you accountable. They mm-hmm. build you up. They make you feel good. They tell you when you're screwing up. They lift you up when you need it. Um, that's just super, super human. And so, no wonder why you see people on Twitter being like, "I found my family," or, um, and I, I definitely feel that.
1: Well, that's also that's also true. It's really interesting in that uh, you suddenly like you can go anywhere in the world, and you know, put something on Twitter. Like, I'm in. I don't. Know. I mean, Atlanta. Any Bitcoin is here. Yeah, like ten people have come down, and you, you don't know each other, but you know you're going to get on. And you might not agree on everything, but you're generally going to get on. You're going to have a great conversation. You're going to go and have some food, have a beer, and hang out. And it's just going to work. I don't. I don't. There maybe there are other communities like that. I just don't know of any that exists like that. It's not like I could I could go to Atlanta and say, Hey, Liverpool games on. Any Liverpool fans? Oh fuck, down. What's the score in the Liverpool game? Um. Big game right now. I've double booked us for Liverpool v Everton, the Merseyside derby, by the way. But like, you could turn up and there could be a bunch of knobs and you wouldn't get on with them. But I've just found like, when you travel around, there's a lot of people that you can really get on with with this. It's kind of weird.
0: Yeah, speaking of something important, which is that this is fundamental values overlap. Yeah. Football is superficial. You like a team, whatever. You might love it. You might consider it not superficial.
1: It's not to me, man. But compared to... I just bought a football team.
0: Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, Compared to base values, how do we relate to government? How do we relate to our family? How do we relate to our food? The base, base stuff, Bitcoiners overlap on. It doesn't matter if you eat meat or you're vegan or you're left or you're right or whatever. Like, yeah, there's maybe some tension around there. But really, to your point, you can throw a text up and say, any Bitcoiners come for a drink, and you're going to instantly get on with everyone. And what I think a lot of people miss here is that I host meetups, by the way, in Minneapolis. We have a really great group. Shout out, Bitcoiners in Minneapolis! But what, what's funny is that we don't talk about Bitcoin that much. You get together, and yeah, okay, we see the world through that lens. But really, you're, you're friends with shared values, and like, you're talking about Bitcoin adjacent things more often than
1: people mm. think. Um, Interesting. What's the school? It's tomorrow. Oh, fuck it! <laughs> I thought it was tonight. Oh, who are we clashing with tomorrow? Um the mayor. for fuck's sake, man, That's <laughs> bullshit. Um, Okay. A couple of other things I want to talk to you about just before we finish. Talk to me about the real super cycle.
0: Mm, yes. Mm. Okay. So this is kind of just a cheeky point, but um people have said, okay, the super cycle theory, I think Daniel popularized yep. it, which is essentially that we're not going to have a bear market. We're just going to keep grinding up because You know it's time. And I think there's some credence to that. And the way I would frame this theory is essentially um, Bitcoin hasn't really changed that much in the last 10 years, but the context around Bitcoin now is way different. Um, It's sort of taken its place as a macro asset. We've upgraded the level of buyers. It's been de-risk. All these things could lead to a future where the world's burning down and Bitcoin's rising. Um, I think that there's something to that. What I'm saying with the real super cycle, again, Cheeky, is essentially that all of these cycles seem to be overlapping at once. And, you know, Okay, we have the fourth turning, so demographics lead to a crisis. We have the long-term debt cycle, so we have to redo the financial system. We have the sovereign individual. We're transitioning from the uh, industrial age to the information age. We have uh, the age of Aquarius which I don't know much about, but it's essentially a 2000 year cycle that apparently we just transitioned to. Um, we, we hit peak globalization about a decade ago. Um, that's now reversing, right? Foreign trade as a percentage of GDP has already peaked. Um, we've essentially stretched our economic expansion through fiat money um, to its limits, and now populism's in control. Um, what else? Individualism versus collectivism. I think we're approaching the peak of collectivism and we will start to swing back maybe in a decade or two. And so essentially you you lay all these up together and they're all cresting at the same time. Mm. Um, That's pretty gnarly. And I couldn't pretend to know what that means or whatever, but it leads me to believe that it's going to be a big one. It's going to be more volatile than usual. And if all the cycles overlap, that gives me a little more confidence also
1: um, that something's coming. Oh, I right, come on Bitcoin okay and then like last final thing let's 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 finish on something cheery okay we go through the fourth turning whatever what have we got to look forward to in the first turning we'll we'll be alive during this right definitely okay, yeah what have we got to look forward so for
0: to? timing um each turning is about 20 to 22 years this one started in 2008 so roughly by 2030 you'd expect us to be wrapping up.
1: Interesting, because when I last spoke to Lynn Orden, we talked about inflation and she said, it's going to be an issue for about a decade, she thinks. Definitely. Yeah.
0: Um, and that's also Bitcoin's 21st birthday on 2030.
1: Spooky. Okay.
0: Um, so what do we have to look that's forward also,
1: to? That's also the year Bedford FC, which I the team I bought, gets into the Premier League. Wow! Nobody's ever heard of that. It's nine promotions. That's fucking spooky, isn't it? <laughs> That's pretty spooky. Oh, Bedford. <laughs> Don't mock me, this is fucking, this is important. I know it's a big deal for you. Dude, All right, come on. <laughs>
0: um, okay, what do we have to look forward to? So the 50s, right, this is the period of the last first journey. We just got done fighting. This is white picket fences, um, a period of rising economic progress of the middle class for about two decades leading up to the, about 1970, that was peak uh, middle class. Um, And so, yeah, there's probably going to be a situation where we reset the game board. Institutions are strong. Hopefully they don't look like China. Hopefully they look like something uh, from the West, hopefully hopefully from Bitcoin. Um, And if that's true, then we should see some light at the end of the tunnel. Um, But I think that the idea of a Bitcoin Renaissance, which I think Brady probably popularized, um, essentially sound money world, we're gonna have a lot of positive things come from that. I believe that that's true. Um, if Bitcoin does what we think it's gonna do, but I think it's gonna take a lot longer than we think, right? And I think it's really hard for me to even think through this next decade and think about the cheery stuff because like, think about, okay, we're eight years away from the end of the fourth turning. That would put us at around like the late 30s. So we had a recession in 37, we went to World War II, we came up with the IMF, the World Bank, the Bretton Woods system, um, empires rise and fall, and totally massive changes in that last five, 10 years. And so I I predict similar level of volatility or more now. And so I'm scared of that period, but if we look forward, we're gonna figure it out. Humans are not gonna end our reign here. And if we do it right, and we're right about Bitcoin, Bitcoin will be the base layer of a new bright future. And I'm optimistic about that. That's why I'm here. That's why I don't care about NFTs even though they're probably going to be massive because humans like things like that. I care about the long-term mission and I view my life successfully if I do whatever I can to help do this thing for for our species. And what does it look like? I mean, I think going back to Harry's quote again, right? You're shifting the power back to the producers and away from the political class. And it's gonna be an emergent thing. Um, I foresee centralized, centralized governments being less relevant, kind of a sovereign individual thesis. We're already seeing that game theory play out. Bitcoiners are highly mobile capital with ideological principles, and we're ready to come build wherever you'll have us. And enterprising young countries like Bukele, like El Salvador, they're going to observe this, and they're going to attract the talent. We're going to come there, and we're going to make it succeed. It's like now that El Salvador attaches itself to the Bitcoiners, we have this incentive, even if it's sort of like a base instinct, but we can't let El Salvador fail now. It makes us look bad, right? So, it's emergent incentive, incentive alignment. Energy everywhere is going to be attached to Bitcoin. Those countries are going to support it. Other countries are going to fight it, right? And that just pushes the miners out of the uh, hostile environments and puts them into a more long term aligned relationship.
1: That's the game theory.
0: That's the game theory.
1: Uh, I'm sure we're going to look back on China's banning of not only Bitcoin, but Bitcoin miners as one of the biggest. Geopolitical mistakes of the last century.
0: Totally agree. Just like when they went all in on silver, and just like when they uh, got rid of all their big ships because the merchant class was getting too powerful, and they gave the seas to Europe. Right, massive blunders. And that's that's the China way. It's like we're doing it our way. We're not doing it your way. And that's our opportunity. Right? They pushed it out. We should lean into this hard. We should yep. throw away the idea of CBDCs, and we should lean into Bitcoin. It's extremely American. It's good for American people. It's good for the West, Western ideology. It's good for the long-term of our species. Um, we need markets, we need competition. And this is what, in my mind, is our best chance of saving markets. And if we don't have markets, it's over, right? It's not gonna end immediately, but it's a slow decline to being over. Um, going back to China produces no innovation. They can't do it.
1: it gives me hope for my children, man. It gives me hope for my children. Yeah,
0: are we just the soldiers going through the transition and we'll hand it off to our kids I once it's nice? I
1: think that's what might be happening, dude. Um, trying to orange build them. My daughter's orange pilled as fuck. That's amazing. She's like, she's like how do I get more Bitcoin debt? Can I have some Bitcoin debt? When do I get my Bitcoin debt? Can I earn Bitcoin debt? Uh, yeah, okay, wicked. Listen, Brandon, I knew this was going to rock, man. Have I missed anything you want to talk about? Um,
0: I don't think so. I think we kind of meandered through it all.
1: I feel like we can do this every year. Like an update, where are we? We're in a worse place, we're in a better place. But uh Definitely. Dude, I love your work. Uh it's great to see you. We should go and have some dinner now. But uh appreciate you flying in for this. Uh it definitely worked better in person. And uh just tell people where to find your posts all about this, because I think we'll put it in the show notes, but people should follow you and go read
0: it. Yeah, absolutely. First, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Um, you got a, quite a team here. It's been good getting to know you guys. Appreciate it. Um, again, yes, agree, the in-person stuff is totally different feel, a lot more personal, which is mm-hmm. cool. Um, where can you find me? Twitter is the best, bquittem, B-Q-U-I-T-T-E-M. All my writing is on my personal website, which is just my name, Uh, We reference an essay I published a year ago, Bitcoin and the Rhythms of History. You can find it on my Twitter or on my website. Um, also wrote a lot about um, mycelium of money. Um, Comparing Bitcoin to a living organism—that one's quite mind-blowing itself. Um, And I work for Swan, and so if you are looking for an easy, safe way to buy Bitcoin, SwanBitcoin.com. Corey would be proud of you right now. Yeah, do a little self-shill there. That's okay, man. Um, We'll get away with
1: that one. Yeah,
0: but but I mean it. You know, (laughs) I think normal people should be just dollar-cost averaging on Bitcoin, and we make that as easy as possible. And we also have a whale business, so if you want to. You know, one-on-one support, talk to Stefan Lavera about your cold storage, get some hand-holding. We do that as well. It's a fast part of our business. Um, what most people don't know is the boomers are starving for Bitcoin. Um, they're not already, but they're trickling in. Um, and so we're capturing that market. So send your parents to Swan. We love your parents. Um, that's enough for Swan. It's enough for
1: me. Appreciate it, Peter. All right, right, ma'am. Listen, let's go eat. Let's do it. Cheers. Okay, thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, you want to reach out to me, the best thing to do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at did.com. And if you want to support the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. Okay, see you all very, very soon.